Hey friends, I'm so, so thrilled to be bringing you season three of That's What She Did podcast. That's right, season three of this tiny little podcast that started out as a simple experiment. And here we are with season three. As is our tradition, we are launching during Women's History Month. And this season, I'm bringing you a theme that is unapologetic. Each episode is organized under the umbrella of unapologetic women. These are women unapologetically pursuing whatever lights their fire, both past and present. I'm bringing you stories of these incredible rabble-rousers, truth-tellers, and artists that are lighting fires all over the place, or that history books did not make the appropriate space for. The season is going to be such a good time, and I'm so happy that you're here with me. So buckle up and let's get started. Hey there, friends. You're listening to season three, episode two of That's What She Did podcast, and I'm your host, Tangie Renee. Before we get started, I want to give a very, very special shout out to one particular magazine, which is completely out of the norm for this show. But I want to say a big thank you to USA Today magazine, who recently named this podcast as an important podcast to listen to, especially during Women's History Month. Now, I was absolutely shocked and deeply grateful for the shout out to be listed among other great, super talented podcasts like Therapy for Black Girls and Invisibilia. And thank you to everyone that supports this show. Please continue to do so by heading over to iTunes, rating and reviewing us because that's how we grow the show. Thank you so much. And let's get started. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of That's What She Did, the podcast. We are here honoring Women's History Month, also following up to Black History Month. Lots of historical and modern women for us to honor during this time. And going right along with that, this week I have a special guest for you. I have Velma Maya Thomas, who is an author of Lest We Forget, The Passage from Africa into the 21st Century. She's a Atlanta-based public historian as well, and I'm happy to have her. Hi, Velma. Hi, how are you? I'm so good. How are you doing? How's Atlanta? It's, It's great. It's great. Thank you. Good, good. I love Atlanta, as I was sharing with you before. I hope to get out to get out there sometime soon again. <laughs> Great. Love to have you. Thank you. So, Velma, I don't recall specifically how we connected, but um, I think maybe your agent reached out to me. Probably my publicist through the book. Mm-hmm. Your publicist about, through the book. Right. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to talk about the book in a minute, but um, I was just really intrigued by your story and what you do. You're a public historian, which I think is a title and a job that we just don't hear about (laughs) anymore. And when I first, that was actually the thing that I was like, a public historian? Do I even really know what that is? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I love history, but I knew I did not want to be in an academic setting. Mm -hmm. So a public historian takes the history and breaks it down so that everyday people 
can understand and begin to say, oh, history is interesting. So it I will go out. Yeah, it is interesting. <laughs> I will go out into the field. I will go out into seminaries. I will do, I will do oral histories. I will take stories that have been hidden and bring them to life. And I would do it in such a way that it's, it's open to everybody. So you don't feel as though you have to have a PhD in history. And we talk about controversial things, um, you know, like the, the Confederate monuments, things of that nature. Oh, things that, yes. This is in public space. How does the public respond? We talk about public memory because memory is very selective. Mm -hmm. So if you're talking about uh, the civil rights history, if you're talking about lynching, people remember things differently. Mm -hmm. And they may not always be factual, but they are driving who they are. So it's a discourse. It's a way of pulling people into the history of what has happened and how it's influencing and affecting the present. That's a really, um, that's a really important point, I think. You said something, you said it's a discourse. And I think that's true. I think that we, we don't think of history generally as being something that's open for discussion. It's more right. like it's over and done and that's just the way that it was. Um, but I remember getting into college and taking like my first Chicano histories class and my first African-American history class and getting the real history mm -hmm. and being pissed off <laughs> <laughs> because I was like, wait a second. <laughs> We have been lied to. Yes, yes. Life. Yeah. And, and I had that experience. I was um, teaching an introduction to African and African-American history at Georgia State University. And in the middle of my lecture, a young lady raised her hand and she was just heartbroken and a little upset. She said, why haven't we heard this before? Mm -hmm. And it was though the truth had been hidden from her. Information had been hidden from her. And here she is a freshman in college. And she's just hearing some of this for the first time. And I think I will always remember that statement because she was just kind of like heartbroken. Like, why? Why haven't we heard this before? You know, about women's movements, about, about the, the, the women's organizations. You know, you hear certain things. You hear about slavery, you hear about civil rights, and you may hear about something in the middle. Right. But you don't hear about that, that protracted struggle. And she really wanted to know who, 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 has been, who hasn't told me this, who's been keeping us from this information. Yeah, I like I totally feel that. I felt the same way. And and I was still shocked because when I was in high school, I was even in AP history. Mm -hmm. And so we got deeper into the discussions. But when I got to college, I was like, there was there was like a hundred layer layers below that that we didn't even touch on. Look, this isn't right. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> I'm very angry. So I hear that. And that's why I think. Um, when I heard your title, public historian, I was like, there's something there that we need yeah. to talk about. Right, right. <laughs> so I appreciate you. You know, I'm curious to know, what are your thoughts on the current state of things um, regarding race in America, considering that here we are, 2019, we're at a point in time where I think in some ways, we're seeing Black people, Black women in particular, getting more um, acknowledgement right. for their struggle and for everything that they've contributed mm -hmm. um, in some ways. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? But we're still at this place where I think in this country where as a whole, there's very little willingness to confront our racist history 
and how that has been carried into our presence? I, I think the um, floodgates were opened with this last election, a presidential election. So people who may have had certain feelings didn't think it was politically correct to speak of it. And so now they figure, okay, anything goes. I can say or do anything. I'm mimicking the president of the United States. If he can say and do anything, then certainly so can I. And, and I think we're at a place now where the masks are off and you're beginning to see some people for who they really are. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's troubling. You would kind of hope at this stage we would be beyond that as a people, but obviously we're not. And so now it's, 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 does this anything even shock us anymore? You, you know, know? <laughs> I still find myself being shocked. It seems mm-hmm. like we reach a low and then there's a, there's a basement below that. Right, right, right. Sub basement. And I'm like, where does it end? Right. Where is the bottom? That's yeah, the question. Where's the bottom? <laughs> where's the bottom? <laughs> that was a line out, out of um, Raisin in the Sun. Um, she was asking, you know, the whole household was in an uproar. This is Lorraine Hansberry's Raises in the Sun, which I love. And mm-hmm. the sister finally said, where is the bottom? And that has stuck with me, you know, like, yeah. where's the bottom in this thing? Is it just, I think he said it's going to get worse and worse and dig deeper and deeper. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's just like every day, it's like something crazy, something else is going on. But I think with, um, with social media and internet, some of the things that African-Americans have been experiencing that other people kind of just said, nah, it's not that bad. Y'all exaggerating. They're beginning to see that now. You know, just yeah. the attacks on being black. You just can't yeah. just be black. You have to yeah. justify every move, every place you stand, every bottle of water you try to sell. You have to justify that. Mm-hmm. And that's our daily existence. And the rest of non, non-colored America, don't, they don't understand that. Mm-hmm. And they won't understand it because they've never walked in our shoes. Yeah, I hear you. That's true. Um, someone said, I saw on, I was on Twitter yesterday mm-hmm. and, and somebody posted like something that somebody said that was very clearly racist. And the question was like, why does this keep happening? And so I responded to it and I said, well, it keeps happening because we're not willing as, as, a, as a country to, to confront and acknowledge the, our racist underpinnings. Right. We, we keep pretending that these things don't happen. We keep pretending to be surprised by them. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're surprised because you've never had to experience it before. But in the, a, in the information age, when everybody has a video camera in their pocket, right. it's not that it's happening more and more. It's that you're just seeing what everyday you're life just is. Just seeing it. Different right. than you. Mm-hmm. I agree. And it's just, I just am like, like to your point, like, where is the bottom? I don't, I don't know what it is. We seem to not have reached it yet. Yeah. Yeah. And every time I think, okay, <laughs> we're done now. <laughs> we're going to, like, <laughs> it's not going it to get. It gets worse. <laughs> and then Liam Neeson comes out and we're like, oh, Liam Neeson. <laughs> And the governor of Virginia. And yeah, then, and then, like, yeah, you just end up staring. Your, your head begins to tilt, like, huh? Yeah. <laughs> you know, now what? Yeah, now uh, what? Now what? And I think what's interesting, what keeps standing out to me, um, and I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts are from a historical point of view, is that I think people think that they couldn't possibly be biased, have inherent bias, or be racist 
if they consider themselves to be liberal or if they consider themselves to be a Democrat, or if they're also a person of color who isn't black. And that is mind boggling to me mm-hmm. <laughs> because I've heard, like I've been in places where another person of color will say something that is very clearly anti-black, but they won't hear it that themselves that way. And they're like, well, I couldn't be, I'm not biased. I'm because not I'm, racist. Yes, because I'm not I'm white. Brown, I'm brown. And I'm like, right. Yeah. But 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 it, it it depends on if you have accepted the culture, mm-hmm. the the white or the, the white culture and its values, because you can be sucked in so quickly. A person can be sucked in so quickly and not even realize that what they've said is racist. Yeah. Or does it or does it even make sense? Yeah. And and good people and it's not about a good a good white person or a or a, a good person of color. It's about institutions. Mm-hmm. You can be my best friend and have my best interest at heart. But if you are not attacking the institution, this one-on-one friendship that we have, it'll just be it will just be a one-on-one friendship. And so you'll never have a broader change. And so when people say I'm not racist, or when people say my family never had slaves, mm-hmm. but but you benefited and yeah. you continue to benefit. And until you see it broader than one-on-one, it'll never change. Yeah. I guess I just continue to be surprised that this is a repeat of history. Like we, it's documented. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there are books and there are films and there are, you know, many examples of, of this in our past and we're just doing it again, it seems. Yeah, but uh, because it's so inherent in our culture and I, I really think racism, racism and prejudice, these things are really learned at the dinner table. Mm-hmm. They're learned in the homes. They're learned in the communities. Yeah. They're learned and, and it's so subliminal that when, it, when something pops out of a child's mouth, they're like, oh, where did you get that from? Well, they got it from home. Yeah. They heard you. They heard the conversations. So they're just repeating what they've heard. And everybody's shocked and amazed, but you don't really realize that how comfortable you could be in your privilege. Yeah. And there was a young, I mean, just different things that are coming to mind. There was a, a, a young white boy, one of these prep schools, who kind of wrote about why he's glad he had white privilege. Because he saw his privilege, you know, of being white. I'm glad I'm not a black youth because I could be pulled over and put in jail or, you know, shot. And everybody was like, oh, my God, he's, he's telling the truth. Okay, we've been telling this same truth for years, but it has to come out of a different mouth yeah. for some people to accept it. Yeah. And so now, even as, as, there's, as there are more biracial children and white mothers have to hold on to their black sons now mm-hmm. and say, you be careful going out in the street. And now everybody says, oh my God, it's racism. Okay, I've had to hold on to my son and my mother had to hold on to their sons and grandmothers and all this is going back. But now it's personal to that society. So now it's a problem. Yeah. So I guess it all depends on where you stand. If it's not knocking at your door, you don't think anything about it. But now when the issue comes to your door, then all of a sudden everybody's up in arms and we have to do something and this isn't fair. Right. Mm-hmm. It has not been fair. Right. You're right. You're right. <laughs> I, should, I should not be surprised, but <laughs> I can't help myself. <laughs> yeah. So the work that you're doing now as a historian, I think is really interesting. So I want to make sure that we have space to talk about that. You're 
working on, well, have been working on for quite some time and growing something called the Black Holocaust Exhibit. Right. This is um, a collection of original documents that chronicle our, our enslavement and our resistance. Uh, I began this in the mid-1990s when I was the manager of the Shrines of the Black Madonna Cultural Center and Bookstore in Atlanta. And I had begun collecting out-of-print books by African-American writers. And one day I just, and this is before all the emails and all this, one day I got a, a, a letter from someone out West and he said he had two documents, uh, one of a man who was sold into slavery and one of a young child who had been sold into slavery. And he just indicated, would you like to see them? And so I said, sure, you know, send them. And when I read them, when I actually saw this in someone's penmanship, it really just changed that the history was no longer academic. It was very personal. It was very tactile. I could not deny what I was holding in my hands. Mm-hmm. And so I would begin to uh, just put out calls and just, you know, different places. If you have any documents on, on slavery, you know, we'd like to see them. And I think I did that because particularly in the 90s, a lot was happening in terms of African-Americans, in terms of us re- reuniting with our past. Mm-hmm. There was the... Um, the, the slave cemetery in New York that was rediscovered. And so people were saying, wow, they were building this government building. And they said, you know, there are bones here. And then they did all the history and it, and it was an early cemetery. And so that, that came forward. Um, the Amistad movie was starting to come forward. Mm, yeah. I remember Amistad. Yeah. Uh, the slave ship, the Henrietta Marie down in, in Key West, Florida, all this was coming forward at this time. And, you know, I just said, so the ancestors had to be speaking from the cemetery you know, through the arts, from, from the bottom of the ocean, and through these documents. All this is happening at the same time. So this wasn't happenstance. This was an awakening for African-American people. And so we began to collect these documents. And then at one point, we had maybe about 20 or 30. And so I displayed them in the cultural center. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, putting our, our, our old-fashioned way of advertising. And so the first weekend, you know, a few people came and they kind of looked. And then that next weekend, the store was packed. And I'm saying, I'm saying this is word of mouth or Tom Toms or something here. We're getting this word out. And people just were flocking in to see this. And it was, a, it was, it was an awakening for us because anything that we weren't sure of or you say, hey, yeah, there weren't really separation of families. But when you see a young child who's living in Virginia and sold to Louisiana and there's no mention of a parent, mm-hmm. then you know, families were separated. If you see an older man bought, if you see somebody who's listed on a document as having no value because he's old, these aren't stories we're making up. Mm-hmm. This is the truth that we're just simply retelling and putting before the public. And, and that, that, pretty, that is kind of how we started this. And it, it just came at a time when people were saying, you know, this is our history. And we want, we want to know about it. We want our children to know about it. We are not going to hang our heads. Because if we survive this, we can survive whatever America throws at us. Yeah. Um, do you remember how many out-of-print books you collected? Offhand, I'm going to say probably about 50. Wow. Wow. And we, and we resold them. I, th- I know we had one by Zora Neale Hurston. I kind of wish I held really? on to that. Yeah. And some, guy <laughs> wanted, some guy wanted to dicker. I said, uh, we don't dicker with Zora. He just laughed. <laughs> but it was still good that other, that other people were able to have this, you know, we're not a library. And so I said, this is something that we can do for the general public and people recognize the value and want it. Why not? Yeah. No regrets. Fascinating. (laughs) So with the black Holocaust exhibit, I was under the impression that this 
was or is currently a traveling exhibit? It, it was, but it currently is stationary. We're going to try to make it a traveling exhibit and probably not move the original documents because that just becomes too cost prohibitive and everybody's worried about it. But honestly, whenever we have taken it out of the store and taken it to another site, it has remained intact. Nothing has ever been taken. That's that, that, that spiritual protection <laughs> that's over all of this. And so yeah. it's, uh, you know, people see this as sacred. You're like, you're not going to come in here acting crazy and taking stuff and, you know. Good. <laughs> you that know? stuff is, it, it is sacred. Yeah, it is sacred. And, yeah. it's, and, and once we walk in the room and look, it's like, oh my God, this is real. Mm-hmm. You know, We're, it, it changes people. When people come through the exhibit and, you know, I, I want to change it and make it less cerebral, you know, because it's a lot of reading. A lot of times you don't have to read the one or two documents and the energy is so powerful that you kind of move quickly through it. And people may come out and say something or they may not. So sometimes I'm not sure, like, wow, are they getting it? Is this, is this too heavy? And I do remember once during the National Black Arts Festival in Atlanta, um, we took it to one of the local malls and um, set it up there because we had thousands of people coming to the National Black Arts Festival. Mm-hmm. And this young man came in the exhibit and he walked around. He was probably about 20, walked around real fast and walked back out. And I said, I wonder if he got anything out of this. He came back with a friend. <laughs> he did and then from that point I said I will never judge again because <laughs> he went and got a friend and brought him right back in there you know and I have seen you know young people who will read the book read a page because maybe the chapters are very short. I did that deliberately because I want this to be something that you feel and not only read and and sit and read it and just see the expression on their face and see that they're thinking about wow this this stuff is really real so it really hits us at a at a very deep level Talking about is enslavement is not easy for African Americans even today. If no, you want to hunt, yeah. if you want to, if you want to hush a room, bring it up. Mm-hmm. And people get quiet because mm-hmm. that happened. I was in a class and I said we were building databases. I said, well, I have all these documents about you know enslavery, slavery, and enslavement. I want to build a database and put the names in and who the owners were. Boy, that room got quiet, and I felt so bad. I said, oh my goodness, did I just bring up something? And then the next time we met, people started talking about their family history, mm-hmm. about what they knew. So it's, it's, it's a shock and it's painful, but when you get us in a room and we feel comfortable with one another, we will not only tell those stories of heartbreak, but we will tell stories of how folks found each other, how they walked miles to find loved ones. And this, these are personal stories from, from everyday people, the stories that have been handed down through their generation. Mm-hmm. And those, those are very powerful stories, particularly about black love, because you don't hear enough about that. Yeah, that's true. You know, but if you find a brother who's I'm gonna find my wife and walk till he finds her, yeah, I'm ready for that love. <laughs> I'm all with it. <laughs> you know. I don't know. In the age of Tinder, I don't see that going down. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that's a few points, brother. She wants some points, do that. <laughs> walk. Walk. <laughs> oh, baby, yo, I walked over here, you know. <laughs> that's funny. So for the exhibit. It's currently in Atlanta. Yes. Correct. Tell everybody again where it's at. It's at the Shrines of the Black Madonna Cultural Center and Bookstore. And that is in the historic West End of Atlanta. And that's where everything right now is predominantly African-American. It's not far from the Atlanta University Center, where the Mm -hmm. Black colleges are, Morehouse and Spelman. Um, The address is 946 Ralph David Abernathy Boulevard, Southwest. But if you ask anybody where the West End is and where the Shrine is, they can tell you. We've been there for, oh my God, 40 something years. So, mm-hmm. 
All right, folks, you heard it here. If you're in Atlanta or passing through, mm -hmm. stop there and see Velma. <laughs> and yeah. see Sounds yeah. fabulous. The next time I'm in Atlanta, I'm definitely going. Great, great. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Thank you. What, what in particular do you think brings you to this work? I, I don't know. I'm a late bloomer. I, I did not major in history. I fell in love with history probably three-fourths of my way through my career. But I think the idea of telling untold stories mm -hmm. or making sure people are not forgotten. Because you hear a lot about, you know, the, the big name people. And when I was teaching middle school, I said, okay, Black History Month, we're not going to talk about Harriet Tubman. We're not going to talk about Dr. King. <laughs> we're not going to talk about, you know, and we're going to dig deeper and find some other people to speak about. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times there are stories that are hidden yeah that are very moving and everybody has a story and i think everybody needs to be remembered for what they do and i think that's what really drives me i find the the story that other people don't see and and honestly i tell you i, I don't go looking for these stories these stories find me yeah I'm, I'm sitting in the library minding my own business and some something on a piece of paper go pss, pss, look at me, look at me, look at me. And then I find I'm getting caught up in this story and then I'm chasing it and I'm finding it. And I do mean chasing because I've crossed state lines to cover stories and find stories and called up people and showed up on doorsteps where people didn't know me and would let me in. That's how the spirit really works. I, was, I don't even know if I would let me in. <laughs> if I was on my own doorstep, would I let me in? <laughs> you know, but strangers would say, yeah, come on in. <laughs> and it's been a remarkable journey. <laughs> It's been a remarkable journey. And that's what drives me to say, look, here's something. Look at this. And people go, Yeah, oh. I think when you're walking in your purpose, that just kind of happens. Things mm -hmm. sort of come together. Yeah. Um, I definitely hear that. I mean, that's the basis of this show is, um, you know, this, this show is not my job. It's something that I wanted to do because I felt like there's these women out here who are these unsung heroes that were they're never going to be famous right and a lot the ones that are you know modern that are, are with us now aren't looking to be famous they're not asking for recognition but they have stories to tell that matter mm -hmm. um, that inspire everyone and so that's why I do this show on top of everything else I got going on <laughs> I do this show and Thank you. like you said it's amazing to me I don't go looking for anybody to be on the show right there's been a, a handful of times that I've invited someone to be on the show mm -hmm. where I've just been like, I like this person and I'll send them a quick email. Hey, you want to be on the show? Um, but other than that, nope. The, the best, most incredible stories find me. I don't mm -hmm. go looking for them. They just end up somehow connecting with me. And I'm wow. like, okay, I guess it's a sign. <laughs> it's a sign. It. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're walking in your passion and that makes a difference. You know, I love doing it. It's a ton of work, but I'm like, I'll find a way to fit it in. Mm -hmm, <laughs> so, mm -hmm. Yeah, I understand. So I definitely <laughs> hear you on that. I love that. So <clears throat> was was the exhibit itself the um, motivation or the inspiration for your book? Yes, it was. Um, there was a, well, I, I was managing the bookstore. And so there was a sales rep, Manny Barron, who has since passed, who was with Random House. And I was interviewed along with other people in the New York Times, just uh, in depth how African-Americans were remembering slavery. This is like 97, 95, 97. And so he called me the next day. It was a Sunday. Yay. 
big, you know, big story. And he says, is this, uh, is this you that I'm reading about? And I said, yes. He said, well, tell me about this exhibit. And I told him, he said, well, what if, what if we did a book about it? I said, Mandy, there's so many history books out now. We got to do something different. <laughs> you know, he said, well, what if we put the exhibit in the book, reproduce some of the documents and have them so that people can hold them in their hands and pull them out of an envelope or run their fingers across it. I said, I think that would really work. And that's, and that's how it all started. That's amazing. So dig in a little bit more um, with the book. What, what do you think are like your favorite stories from the book? I think the one that's entitled, but whether right now this, there are three books in one. So I wrote the first book, Lest We Forget, The Passage from Africa, Slavery to Emancipation. And then I followed up with Freedom's Children, which covered Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a songbook in there, No Man Can Hinder Me, which is about our spirituals, which I, I really love that book. I tell people I love that book because Masa ain't in that. That's just about the, <laughs> it's just about the community uh-huh. and how we survive. And, and then We Shall Not Be Moved. And those books came out about 20 something years ago. Mm-hmm. And people would still ask me about them. And you know, certain books for certain reasons, publishers don't reprint. Right. And then other books for other reasons they do. But I, you know, I couldn't go to the grocery store. I couldn't go get my hair done. And people say, we need the book. When are you going to get the book back? And so <laughs> I'm saying, I, somebody's got to reprint the book. So Becker and Mayer, and it's a whole new generation of people at Becker and Mayer now. They're the, they're the, the publishers. Mm-hmm. So they decided, well, let's reprint the book and put the three books, the interactive books into one. And so now when I, when I look at it, um, one of my, the topics that I really love in the first book, which deals with enslavement, is Masters of Their Own Fate, which just talks about how we resisted our enslavement. And I, it just really makes a difference. You know, we talk about the runaway slave notices and how much they told about our people. Uh, for example, Yara, a man of Guinea country, about six feet high, has country marks on each side of his face. Or mm-hmm. Matilda, a young mulatto branded on her right breast with the letter NB and had with her a small child when she ran. They told why the fugitive slaves ran and where they might go has family on a nearby plantation is expected to go there or absconded after a recent beating or fled fearing she was to be sold again. Mm-hmm. And so when I, when I think about that and how there were rewards out for us, but how nonetheless we always had ingenious ways of either escaping or work stoppages or slowing down or just holding on long enough to believe that things would get better. And I think that really just talks about our, our resistance and our resilience yeah. as a people. Um, and so it was like, you know, they said, well, you give a slave a, a, a good master. I said, yeah, but he, pretty soon he wants to be his own master. So there's no such thing as a good master. Mm-hmm. Just, he's just better than the one over there. Yeah. <laughs> but they're not good if you're enslaving people. And so it's, it's just that, and that's one thing I always want to make sure that particularly young people or people who are not that familiar with our history knows is that we resist it in different ways. Mm-hmm. You know, even if it was just, I'm going to take this so that I can live and figure out how my children can be free. Yeah. And, 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 that, and that's an inspiring story. And, and just to know how people took that chance to run. And there were notices. I mean, it's like a dog catcher. Yeah. Put your hat on, if you stammered, if you're missing two toes, if you were running north to be with your family and friends, if you had a child, you know, if you dressed up, if you stole papers for freedom, just the ingenious ways, ingenious ways in the end how determined we were to be free. Mm-hmm. Um, I like um, Freedom's Children Reconstruction. I really didn't know that much about Reconstruction, but that was a time right after slavery where America 
could have set the record straight. We could have started all could've. over. Yeah. Everybody just, that's just okay. Let's just start all over again on equal footing. Mm -hmm. But it didn't happen because the residuals were there. So there was, there was land that was given to African-Americans that, that Andrew Jackson just Johnson threw out and said, no, y'all can't have this. There was a Freedmen's Bank where a lot of money was just kind of lost. Mm -hmm. um, were, you know, trying to vote. Still the Klan raised this ugly head. But still, we marched on. You know, we had the, the women's movements. We had the NAACP. We had all of these movements coming forward. And then looking into the civil rights struggle, we're, we're, a lot of us are more familiar with that. But just, I was amazed at how many young people were involved. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes you don't realize, they were like 20, 21, 22 college students putting their yeah. lives on the line. Yeah. Blacks and whites putting their lives on the line mm -hmm. to, to make this a better place. And so when people say out of you know maybe ignorance or just not knowing like why did why can't y'all get over this why can't y'all get over this slavery and, and i was at a conference and i said let's stop using the word slavery let's mm -hmm. use the word terror because we have been under we have been terrorized since we were brought here and so if you get hung up on slavery between year x and year z you would think that maybe we would get over it but there's every generation has been terrorized until you realize that then, then, then you won't understand like right. why, why we have to keep fighting, why we have to keep bringing this up because y'all won't give us a break. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, when y'all quit terrorizing us, we'll quit talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, 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 it's that. It's just when you don't live that life, when you don't see it from that perspective, you're always like, oh, wow, I never saw that. I, I never thought about that. These were historians. These, these are the people in the, you know, teaching this in the universities. And I'm thinking, Come on, people. Let's let's wake up. Let's, let's tell the truth. Yeah, let's like, see what's really happening here. Let's just tell the truth. My goodness, what else y'all yeah. want? <laughs> you know, look yeah. out the window every now and then. Go to another part of the. Talk to some people who don't look like you. Mm-hmm. And find out what's going on. Yeah, I agree. Uh, thank you for reading that excerpt from the book. That was beautiful. Um, I definitely want to read the book. I'm just thinking of late, I've had a lot of authors on the show and I'm like, oh, I want to read all of their books and I don't know how I'm going to get that done. <laughs> I think, I think everybody pushes this. I think you will enjoy this one because like I said, I made the chapters maybe one or two pages long. Okay. There, there are documents that you can pull there. There's very visual. It's written in a style that you can kind of put it down and think about it. And you don't feel like I got to finish chapter 12 and it's got 17 pages in there. You know, it's all, they're short, but they're like, wow, this is it. This is what really happened. This is how we capture this. And it's, it's a family book. It's, it's a coffee table book. So people can sit down with it and read it to their children and, and talk about these things. And um, just this whole idea about, you know, working enslaved. And one person, had, she said she had read the chapter to her daughter. And then after a while, her daughter said, so mommy, they didn't get paid. And she said, who? She said, the slaves, they didn't get paid. I mean, she really thought about it over a period of time. Mm -hmm. like, wow. And, you know, mom read it and kept going, and the, but it's stuck with the child. So it's something that families can sit down and, and discuss. Mm -hmm. And I know family stories will come up out of this. And some of our family stories are not always pleasant, but you're right. going to find somebody in your history who stood up, who yep. did something, who, who resisted. I say, everybody's got, you know, an, an aunt who's, who wouldn't take no, and a crazy uncle who wouldn't fall in <laughs> line, you know, Uncle Bobo. <laughs> I ain't working for nobody. <laughs> Everybody got an Bobo. <laughs> you know? So there, there's your family stories 
that you yeah. can look back and say, wow, you know, I come from some strong people. Yeah. And if I don't, I'm going to be the first. I'll be the strong one. The craziness stops with me. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So where can everyone find the book? You can find this book at any major bookstore. I always want to uh, promote the independent bookstores and African-American bookstores. You can do the major bookstores. You can go online. Uh, you can find the book, uh, Lest We Forget by Velma Maia Thomas, The Passage from Africa into the 21st Century. It's, it's, it's new. It's out. If you got the first books, and people knew about the first one, but not the sequels. So now you can get them all in one package. And it's a dynamic book. I have to say so myself. It's a dynamic book. It runs about $40. You can't get three books in one with, with artifacts and handouts right. and a timeline and things you can pull out and things you can put on the wall and things you can handle for that price. That's and it's true. our story. It's our story. I tell yeah. it our perspective. I'm not trying to prove a thing to anybody else. <laughs> I, I love story. it. I love it. Velma, thank you. I will thank pick you. it up and it'll just, I'll, I'll read through it slowly in, in the midst of all of the. Oh yeah. <laughs> okay. No problem. <laughs> so, I mean, I love books, so I always have a stack of them around. Uh -huh. so I'll just get it in. I, I get them all read eventually. Okay. So. <laughs> all right. Yeah. I'll get it in here and make sure it's part of the rotation. Great. <laughs> I, I love like it. That. Thank you. Through all of your studies and all that you've learned, is there a, a woman in particular that you look at and go, wow, pe more people need to know her story? Yes. Her name is Mamie George Williams, um, born in 1872 and died in 1951. This woman made national history. She was the first Republican committee woman from the state of Georgia and the first African-American committee woman in the country. And that's like being in like the, the small band of people who shape the politics. Right. And sometimes when people hear Republican, they go, ah, black people Republican, well, we all were. Yeah, yeah, they, people don't know that. The, the land of Lincoln, the, 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 the Lincoln Party freed us, and so we, you know, we stayed with that one until the 30s, and then we said, okay, we got to switch. So for a black woman to be the second most powerful Republican in the state of Georgia, in the deep South, we're talking, and to have to be the first African-American woman to sit on that council, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty fantastic. Mm -hmm. uh, she, and I love her, I found her out through reading about another man who was the committee man. And he always had this woman who seemed to be a thorn in his side. And so I said, who is this Mamie Williams? That every now and then her name would pop up and he's this woman, she won't be quiet and she won't what. And so I just started to do some research about her. And when I found out she was extremely outspoken at a time when no woman had ever spoken on the floor of the Republican National Convention, she was given that honor. And mm -hmm. at that time she could have said anything she wanted to, but she spoke out against Republican party trying to what they said, lily white the party, i.e. get rid of all the blacks mm -hmm. who were in power. And for her to take that stand at that time when she could have said anything else, it's just remarkable. She had to battle the men. She had to battle because she was black. She was never given the respect uh, that, that was forthcoming to her in terms of being able to say, well, let's appoint this person to certain um, federal posts. She always had to, to, to just fight for everything in the world. And she always said that she did this trying to get everything of value for the race. Mm -hmm. 
she registered thousands of women to vote. She was always very much into the women's clubs. Mm -hmm. She was always looking out for education, making sure that women were educated. She said, we, we black women, call it women, she said, occupy the lowest rung. And so she has to be involved in politics. And she says, I know politics is a sordid game, but because of where we stand, we have to become involved in politics. And she was just very outspoken. And she was right, you know, uh, eventually Hoover Lily White at the party and blacks lost a lot of power. But at times she would speak up and she would be the only person speaking for the race. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that it's just, you know, everybody else is scared. Nobody else wants to say anything. This woman stood up and spoke for the race. And she's just not Harold. And I'm talking about when you are, you're the first of so, in so many ways, somebody ought to know about you. I think mm -hmm. a lot had to do because she was widowed. So she didn't have a man to speak for her. Mm -hmm. um, she, did, she didn't have children. So there was no legacy there. And also, if you're a woman and, and you're, you know, you won't be quiet, people try to hush you up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so, you know, feisty women, you just have to, you have to do battle. You have to get up every day and do battle. But yeah. the women in the community, um, you know, the women across the country who knew of her, honored her. And they said when she died that Savannah, she's from Savannah, Georgia. Savannah lost one of its, its, its loyal citizens. She never, she never backed down. She never sold out the race. She was all about what's good for black people, what's good for black women. And she was very fair-skinned. Mm -hmm. When I see pictures of her, I said she could have passed and nobody <laughs> would have said anything. <laughs> but she held on and she mm -hmm. held on. And she was, you know, independent woman. She had a car. She drove from Savannah to New York. And I'm thinking, wow. And she just was just, just tenacious, very politically astute. She made sure her picture was in the paper with Hoover and all the, you know, when he came down to Savannah, he asked to speak to her. Mm in his private car because he's trying to get the black vote yeah we're talking in the 1920s not early 1930s who does that mm -hmm. who recognizes a woman's power like that yeah he went to the white house to speak to him because he wasn't giving her the respect that he that that was due to her so she didn't back down she was like they said she wasn't scared she was <laughs> she was just all about you know this is this was for her this was her calling and yeah. i promise you because she was you know she, her first, her second husband was affluent. This woman served on boards. She was served on bank boards. She could have really led a very comfortable, quiet, hope y'all get it done life. Mm -hmm. She stepped into the fight every time. It's extremely courageous. Extremely courageous. Mamie George Williams and Mamie Williams. And, you know, even in her final years, people who remembered her said, you know, she was just a different kind of person who always put the community first. Mm -hmm. and, and, and to walk with, with big people, Terrell, and, and just people whose, whose names you hear. I said, why don't I hear enough about her? What is it about her that there's just not enough written about her? So she's my heroine, Mamie George Williams, and um, I'm just going to fight for her because she fought for us. Yeah, Ooh. love it. Thank you so much <laughs> for sharing her story. I'm, I wasn't familiar with her. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, just evidence of how many women are out there that we need to know their stories and mm -hmm. and what they did and, and how they moved us into the future. So thank you so much for sharing what she did. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's what she did. That, that's what she did. I said, oh, no, she didn't. Yeah, she, did that. Yeah, she told him that. Yeah, she said that. <laughs>
it was feisty. <laughs> That's an incredible story. Thank you for sharing, Velma. And thanks for sharing your work and your stories with us as well. I appreciate you so much. Thank you. So how can our listeners find you? They can email me. I don't mind that. At the Maia, M-A-I-A, Thomas at hotmail.com. They can go to my website, VelmaMaiaThomas.com. And make sure you guys grab that book. Let's grab the book yet. The past. You'll love it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> like most things, it's available on Amazon. So no excuses. No excuse. <laughs> Check it out. Thanks again, Velma, for, for joining us here and telling those incredible stories. Thank you. Loved having you on the show. Now, listeners, we got to come to a close of the show right now, but you heard some incredible stories. You heard some great work and you have something to add to your reading list. So go get that done. In the meantime, you know that I need you to head over to iTunes and rate and review this show, please. It is how we grow it to bigger audiences. It's a simple free way that you can support this show and get it into other eardrums. Make sure you share it. If you're listening to this show and you haven't been sharing it with your friends, I don't know what's going on, but you need to get on board. <laughs> Until next time, we're going to get out of here, but we love you. Happy Women's History Month, and we will catch up with you again soon. We're out. <laughs>